Well, today we're going to jump into a, a new series. Uh, not a, it's just a few sermons. Psalm 113 is the passage we're going to be looking at today. But over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of a group of psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 through 118 is, are the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And so uh, today, as I said, we're looking at 113. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word if you're able to do so. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, this is the first of a group of psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And uh, I purposely didn't tell you a while ago what it was, just so you'd be intrigued. And you're going, what in the world is an Egyptian Hallel Psalm? Well, the word Hallel in Hebrew means praise. Praise. The word praise is used five times in these nine verses that we're reading here, that we just read here this morning. The word Hallel is used five times here. And in Psalm 113 and through 118, uh, all these psalms are calling us to praise, to Hallel. And these psalms of praise are called the Egyptian Hallel because they are connected with the Passover, celebrating when the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt. It's not that these were about Egypt, other than they were rescued from Egypt and from slavery there. Now, in the coming uh, years, decades, centuries following the, the first Passover, whenever the Passover festival came up, this group of psalms were included in the festival, particularly in the Passover meal. So Psalms 113 and 114 were recited or sung before the Passover meal. And then 115 through 118 were recited or sung after it. So these are psalms about praising the Lord, particularly for deliverance. And uh, as we look through some of them in the coming weeks, we will see that. Now, the first sentence of Psalm 113 in English is, praise the Lord, right? And in Hebrew, it is uh, one word for us, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Here, here is all of verse 1 in Hebrew. Hallelujah, hallelujah, yahavah. Hallelujah et shame Yahweh. 
Notice the psalm begins with hallelujah and ends with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And this sentence is a command. In that first verse uh, where you have four out of the five instances of hallel or praise, uh, for those times the word is used as a command every time in the first couple of verses except for that last one in, the, in, the, in verses 1 through 3. So it's a command. The word is uh, in the imperative case for you language nerds and buffs out there. It's an imperative. It's a command. The psalm is calling us, indeed commanding us, to praise the Lord. Now, what does it mean to praise the Lord? We say that all the time. What does it mean? But let's think about it for a minute. To praise something uh, is to brag about something or to extol the greatness or excellence of a person, object, or event. You sing someone's praises. You're telling uh, someone else how great they are. And that's what we're called to do here, to praise the Lord. Uh, extol the greatness of the Lord and the things that he has done. And that's what this psalm is doing and calling us to do. Well, let's look at these first three verses. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Now, that's a common phrase throughout the Bible, talking about the name of the Lord. Name means fame. That's a good way to remember when you, when you, when you see uh, them, them use the word name in this way. Name means fame. Name is, uh, it means your reputation. Uh, if you recognize someone's name, you know something about them. When you praise someone's name, you're speaking highly of them. If, if someone's name comes up in a conversation with another person, uh, you'll say, yeah, I know that guy, and uh, I know that lady, uh, and they're wonderful people. That's praising. That's praising someone. So verse 2 says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, the root for the word blessed means to kneel down, so sparing you all those language details, the word bless here means to adore or worship. Uh, you, there's that element in there of kneeling. So you're kneeling down because you're adoring something or someone. The name of the Lord, in other words, his fame, all that the Lord is and all that he has done is to be adored and worshipped. And it tells us when. From this time forth and forevermore. It should never stop being worshipped and adored. God should never stop being praised. In fact, he goes on. Verse 3, we, could, we should praise the Lord all day long. From the rising of the sun to its setting. From the morning to the evening. And I think the implication there is at night you're asleep. So you can't actively engage in praise and worship. So all day long, from this time forth and forevermore, God should be extolled for his greatness and worshipped and adored for all that he is and all that he has done. That's what those first three verses are saying. And this psalm is calling us to worship in 2022 as well. The same command is given to us in the New Testament. Here's one example, Hebrews 13, 15. 
through Him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. We're acknowledging His, his reputation, His greatness, His acts, his, his character, everything about Him. We should never stop telling everybody about how great the Lord is. Now the question we want to really explore here today is why? Why should you and I praise the Lord and praise his name? Why should we do those things? And the psalmist gives us at least two reasons why we should praise the Lord. And we've already, uh, it's already been in our worship service. The first is God's sovereignty and his, his transcendence. So the first hymn we sang was, O Father, You Are Sovereign. We acknowledged the fact that God is over all things. And then the second thing is God's condescension. In the very next uh, song we sang, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, you'll notice there the first verse uh, reminds us that, that the Lord, if I can find it, that the Lord uh, condescended to us. Stanza one. Now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. So God's condescension to us, even though he is transcendent, he is high above us, and he's ruling over everything. Well, let's look at this first thing. God's transcendence and sovereignty is a reason why we should praise the Lord. Look at verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. The Lord is high or exalted, that's what that word also means, above the nations. He is seated on high. Other translations take the liberty to say that he is enthroned on high. And of course, where else would a king sit but on a throne? And he is the king over all things, over the nations. The nations are under him, therefore he rules over them. He sits enthroned over all the nations. And he's so high up there, it says, that he has to look far down to see the heavens and the earth. That's just another way of saying that he is, he is way, way above us, way above us, all the nations. The Bible tells us there nations are just a drop in a bucket to them. Now, as I mentioned before, this was sung before the Passover meal, and it, and it continues to be sung before the Passover meal. According to the book of Exodus, God commands Moses to, to tell the Israelites to mark a lamb's blood above their doors in order that the angel of death will pass over them so that they will not be touched by the last of the ten plagues. If you remember the ten plagues of Exodus when Moses went to Pharaoh and the, you know, the children of Israel were in slavery there for, for a long time and, and the Egyptians were oppressing them, God raised up Moses to go and to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh refused to do so. And then during the last of these ten plagues, they put the blood of the, the lamb over the, over the door frame so that they would be saved from the death of the firstborn by the, the angel. 
Well, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh orders the, Egypt, the Israelites to leave, taking whatever they want. And, they ask, and he asks Moses to bless him in the name of the Lord. Uh, Pharaoh capitulates to God, the sovereign God. He gives in, at least for, for a little while, until he decides to go chasing them down. Well, the passage goes on to state that the Passover sacrifice recalls the time when the Lord passed over the houses of Israelites, of the Israelites in Egypt, and they were saved. The sacrificial lamb was to be eaten quickly with the staff in hand. They're fully dressed, ready to leave at a moment's notice because the Lord was going to deliver them. Now, Pharaoh was a very powerful leader, possibly the most powerful leader on earth at the time, but he was nothing before God enthroned over all the nations. The Lord is sovereign over all the nations, over all the heavens, and by implication, over everything. So in the coming generations when this psalm was and is sung at Passover, it was a reminder of the transcendence and sovereignty of God. Not even the most powerful ruler on earth could stand before Yahweh, the true and living God. But it's not just about his being in this position of ruling over all things. It's also about his qualities. Look at verse 4 again. The Lord's glory, it goes on to say, is exalted above the heavens. His glory is exalted above the heavens. Now this word heavens means the sky or the firmament. It's what you look at when you look up and when you're outside. God's glory, uh, his glory means his, his weight, literally, his W-E-I-G-H-T, his, his weight, um, his worth, his value. You know, we have paper money. Uh, a $100 bill weighs the same as a $1 bill, I assume. I've never weighed them myself. But, you know, they're the same size, same, same paper, etc., but in those days, of course, they had gold and silver, and the more gold you have, the heavier it is, the more valuable it is, right? So that's what this word uh, is referring to, uh, God's glory, his weight, his worth, his value, his eminence, his superiority, his clout, his profundity. God's glory, his value is above the heavens. He's worth more than anything else. He is more glorious than the heavens. Now, when you look out at the heavens, the night sky, for example, and see the moon and the stars, and if you had a powerful telescope, you could see planets, nebulae, and galaxies. Um, and even when you see pictures of these things and, and contemplate the vastness of what you see when you're staring into the night sky, that the, the sun is, what, 93, however many zillion miles away, and all these things fill us with awe. I mean, we went to the Grand Canyon a few years ago, and I know many of you have been there, and when you see this big hole in the ground, it's just like, wow, you know, no picture does that justice. That's incredible. Or even when you look out, out the front door of the church and you see the, the beauty of it all, uh, it fills you with awe. 
But I think nothing is, is more awe-inspiring than looking out into space, into the firmament. It is glorious. But God's glory is above all that you can see in the night sky. He is worth more than all of it and is superior to it. His value exceeds all of that. In fact, He created all of that. All that glorious stuff that fills us with, with awe that we see in the universe, God created that from nothing by just His powerful Word. Yes, His glory, His weight is high above that of the heavens. He means more. You know, this is... That's the SEC's, uh, you know, the basketball season. Southeastern Conference likes to brag about themselves, and their commercials say, the SEC, it just means more. You know, like, we want to win more than anybody else. Well, God means more. And that is a true statement. Nothing means more than God. And that's what the writer here is saying. Same is true today. God is positionally, like we said first, he's positionally high above the United States, Russia, Ukraine, China, Iran, Iraq, name them all, all the NATO nations, every nation under the earth. God is above them all over every nation, and they are powerless before his power. Now it says here that he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. That's, a, that's an interesting picture. You know, he's, he's so... This, this seems to be talking spatially, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. It, it gives the impression that God is somewhere else, but, you know, God is here with us. He's promised to be with us here today in worship. He's here. Two or three are gathered together in his name. But it's just communicating in this kind of language his transcendence, but notice what it's, that, that sentence, he's looking far down on the heavens and the earth. And I think that's a wonderful sentence because he's looking. He's looking. He's not ignoring us. He's not looking off somewhere else. He's looking down at us. He's looking down at his creation. He's concerned about his creation. Unlike the God of the deists who believe that God created everything but has nothing to do with his creation. He's an absentee God. No, the psalmist tells us that God is looking. And he's not only looking, he actually intervenes. Look at verse 7 as it follows verse 6. You know, he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes with the princes of his people he gives the barren woman a home making her the joyous mother of children praise the Lord it reminds us of what uh, Jesus said are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten by God sparrows some of you know that I, I love to look at birds. I'm a bird watcher. I'm into birding, to be proper. Um, I've got a nice feeder. Thank you, Melba. She get, gave me one of her feeders. 
So I've set it up at the back fence in my, you know, I've got my patio there back here and you know, the feeder is right in front of my chair and it's right below one of those crepe myrtles in the backyard there. And I noticed, you know, I've had probably 10, 12 different species come in the last week or two. And I've got my binoculars there with my coffee early in the morning, uh, birding. And my family laughs at me and calls me a nerd and other names. It's very unkind. But this week, uh, uh, a couple of sparrows come. And, and sparrows are a real challenge because there's a lot of different sparrows out there. And there's charts you can look at to try to figure out which sparrow you're looking at. Well, a couple of chipping sparrows came to the feeder. And, uh, and it's only probably 20 feet from where I sit. And, you know, I was looking at the binoculars and I saw them on the feeder and I was looking at my little uh, chart to see which kind they were. And and then one of them went down to the ground where some of the, the seed had fallen. And, you know, I, was, I, had to, I had my binoculars sitting down there, and I was like, oh, well, the birds disappeared. But then I noticed you could, I could barely, from 20 feet away, barely see that sparrow on the ground with my naked eye. And so I picked the binoculars up again. Of course, there he was. I could see him clearly. But 20 feet away, that little bird is tiny, tiny, hardly perceptible to the eye from that close. And hummingbirds are even smaller. But Jesus says, not one of those tiny little birds is forgotten by God. Not one in all of creation. Isn't that beautiful? God looks down from his exalted position and he pays attention to sparrows and to people like you and me. And this is the second reason to praise the Lord. This high and exalted God condescends to the poor, to the needy, the helpless, the barren, and raises them up. Look at verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. The word poor here has the sense of helplessness. That's really what the word means, helplessness. And the helpless here are in the dust. The picture you get is of someone beaten down so badly uh, to the ground that they can't get up. They're just, they've just been knocked in the dirt. Uh, they're paralyzed. They, they can't get up unless someone intervenes, unless someone helps them. Someone else is going to have to pick them up. That's the picture you get here. And likewise, the needy or the impoverished, they are in the ash heap, it says. And the word ash heap is translated different ways in different contexts, but it, it, it's sometimes translated dunghill. You could translate the word dunghill. If you've ever lived on a farm with cows, you know, you uh, have to clean out all the stalls or horses. You clean out the stalls and everything gets thrown into a, a pile and uh, maybe removed for later or something like that. But that's a, that's a dunghill. It's a, it's a graphic picture. Uh, or it's also translated as a garbage heap. Uh, in, in our modern parlance, a garbage dump. Garbage dump. Now these are people, uh, they're at the garbage dump. They have no resources at their disposal. The only thing they can do is pick through the leftovers from people's garbage. And like those helpless in the dust, their circumstances leave them with no alternatives. They're stuck they can't change their circumstances. They have, they're powerless, utterly powerless to do anything. But God raises them up. 
by his condescension. He comes to their aid. God goes all the way to the garbage dump to raise them not just from the dust and from the dung heap, but raises them up to the seat of royalty. It's a complete reversal of fortune that is pictured here. God has looked down from his lofty throne above the heavens and has taken up the case of the poor and the needy and the helpless. He has reached down and picked them up and exalted them. Now you can see why this is sung before Passover. The people of Israel were slaves. Egyptians, Pharaoh and the Egyptians oppressed them. And the more Moses tried to free them, the harder their labor got. You know, they, were, they had to go gather their own straw to make the bricks. And then they were punished for not being able to do the same amount of work as they did before. They were utterly helpless to change their circumstances. They were trapped. But God intervened on their behalf. He lifted them up out of slavery and freed and rescued them. Yes, hallelujah. We're going to sing that every year. And not just every once a year. We're going to sing it from this time forth and forevermore and from morning to evening. Praise the Lord. He rescued us. And there's all the more reason for us to sing it. Look at Rome, or here's Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ, he, he took on human flesh. He came down to us. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God, but God intervened. The sovereign God intervened. He showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that we could be saved and rescued from bondage to our sin. I love those, that, that and this one. The but God passages. Ephesians 2. You are dead and your trespasses and sins, dead. What can a dead person do? Dead in the dust. You can't get up. You're, you don't, you're dead. Nothing. You are dead in, the, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, <clears throat> And the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that paints a very bleak picture. And it's truly, we're just as helpless as the person described and the people described in Psalm 113. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And where does he sit? On a throne. He's raised us up and we're there too. In Christ. Just like Psalm 113 says, he pulled them up out of the out of the ash heap, out of the dust, and made them sit with princes. Our position is with Christ. Now think about that. This glorious God looked down on helpless and hopeless sinners and raised them up 
And just the fact that he cares makes you feel special, doesn't it? I mean, that this exalted God would look at me and my life and care enough to save me. And that Jesus thought of me when he was on the cross. And he paid for my sins on the cross. And I think that's exactly what Paul was feeling when he wrote Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I think Paul's just filled with wonder at that. Because... He, thought, he, he calls himself the chief of sinners. You know, he, he persecuted the church. He put Christians to death, and yet God paid attention to him. Well, look at also at verse 9, and this, this, this seems to come out of the blue, and one commentator said, you know, it almost seems anticlimactic to what you've just been thinking about. It's this exalted God and his condescension to raise these people up and sit them with princes. You know, you've got all this power and royalty and, and beautiful salvation, and then you just get this picture of domestic bliss. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Well, I think the psalmist is making a point there, and I love how one commentator in particular says it, Michael Wilcock. You know, when Israelites were singing this, they had no illusions that they were all going to become princes, you know, seated, seated with princes or become royalty. Really, uh, there wasn't really a picture of that given in the Old Testament. But they would certainly see such practical gifts as that of motherhood to the barren woman to be the kind of princely blessing promised in verses 7 and 8. And if you look back at the prayer of Hannah, uh, this possibly is quoting the prayer of Hannah when she was praying that the Lord would give her a child. And, of course, the Lord heard her prayer and gave her the prophet Samuel. So that's probably what the, psalm, the psalmist has in mind. But I love this statement by Michael Wilcock. As, as the Israelites would have contemplated this and, and thought, yes, that's a, that's a princely blessing to have children. And he says this, what God would do for his people in general, he would do for this person in particular. So if God looks at the, the poor and the, the weak, the helpless, raising them from the dust and the ash heap, he does that in general to his people. There are specific things that God does in specific cases. Not just for the barren woman, but for all of us in whatever circumstances and troubles and difficulties we face. God can intervene and change our, our particular lives, your particular life. The Lord looks down and regards helpless individuals. He sees you. He can lift you up. And that's why we can sing it. Because hopefully we can all sing this. Uh, and if you don't, can't sing this today, uh, you're missing out. Can you think of a time, 
when you've been, or has there been a time in your life when you've been raised from the dust, from the ash heap? Has the Lord intervened in your life and lifted you up into a relationship with Him? Do you know Him? Can you, can you understand what I'm talking about here today? And is your heart filled with praise to the Lord as you think about the change that He's brought into your life? Or maybe, hopefully, a lot of you were raised in the church and you've never known a day when you didn't know the Lord. Do you appreciate that? Do you, do you love the Lord and do you recognize that without that blessing that you've had of being raised in the church or come to the Lord later in life, that that should fill your heart with praise, that you've been rescued from spiritual death, if that's the case. If not, hopefully today, and, and, and if you're thinking about this today, recognize your own spiritual poverty. You're helpless and dead in sins and trespasses. You, you need someone to save you. Of course, it's God that can do that. He's the one. Who is like our God? That's what he asks here. Who is like this God? Who is exalted above, he's exalted above everything else. There's nothing higher than God, and yet he looks down on us and, and intervenes for us. And we need it. Do you recognize that you need him? If so, call upon the Lord. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is a recognition that you have nothing to offer God that would make him save you other than your poverty and helplessness. Uh, the next one is blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for your sin. Recognize that you've got nothing to contribute but sinfulness. And then hunger and thirst for righteousness and the Lord says he'll fill you up with his righteousness. He'll save you. So if you recognize your spiritual poverty, that you're what this psalmist is talking about, but you can't sing it because you've never been exalted, never been saved, then just call upon the Lord. He, that's him. He's inviting you to join in the praises. He's inviting you to embrace him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Let's pray to that end together. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for this psalm that reminds us of your greatness and your mercy. Uh, Lord, I know I've done, not done it justice because you're far greater than, than tongue can recite and your grace is far greater than we can even imagine. So Lord, I pray that every one of us would know it in a deeper way today and that would change us and shape us into the image of Christ, that we would have compassion on others like you've had compassion on us, and that we would sing your praises and bless your name from this time forth and forevermore, from when we get up in the morning to when we go to bed. May your name be praised by us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.